Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Janet Adkison, Director of Public Affairs, and this week we are joined by Bart Fisher. Bart is co-director of Ag and Food Policy Center at the Texas A&M University. And Bart, that is just one of the titles that you carry these days. Uh, Your background actually also extends from Capitol Hill because you worked on the Hill with the Ag Committee. Uh, Tell us a little bit what you're doing now, and then we'll dig into your background if that's okay. Sure. So, you know, now, as you mentioned, Janet, I run the Ag and Food Policy Center. Uh, We're in our 40th year, uh, so we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this summer. Uh, And our center really exists to to work for Congress, for the House and Senate Ag Committees. And interestingly enough, our our sister center is right there uh, in in y'all's home state at the University of Missouri, the Food and Ag Policy Research Institute. We work very closely with them. They handle most of the macro work. We do the farm level work. And so uh, between the two of us, uh, you know, Farm Bill is a busy time because the ag committees are constantly reaching out for, for input. I'll say for AFPC, the main thing we focus on is farm level impacts. And so, uh, and for me, I, you know, I'm a farm kid, grew up on a farm in Southwestern Oklahoma. That's the part that I'm most passionate about is, you know, how do the decisions in Washington, D.C. affect affect farmers on the ground? And so, uh, it's a it's a pretty fun job for me getting to focus uh, focus on that uh, day in and day out. Now you're doing that full time now, but you were also kind of rather doing it full time in your previous life <laughs> sure. as somebody in Washington D.C. Talk about that experience for eight years. Sure. So I joined the committee on the, on the staff, working for then Chairman uh, Frank Lucas from Western Oklahoma. I started as his chief economist back in June of 2011. Uh, and what I thought might be a you know a short tenure in Washington turned to eight and a half years of working for the Agriculture Committee. So I stayed on with Chairman Mike Conway following Mr. Lucas. And so I was chief economist of the committee for about eight and a half years throughout the development of the 14 and the 18 farm bills. Uh, and then in 20 for the 2018 farm bill, I was also deputy staff director of the committee as well. So I got to wear a, a few different hats and uh, it was an incredible experience. Um, I got married a week before starting that job and had three kids in Washington. And ultimately we decided it was time to get them back closer to the farm and the kids back closer to the farm. So uh, we moved back to Texas about two, about four years ago to, uh, to run the Ag and Food Policy Center here. Well, I'm betting you're not regretting that decision and getting a little bit more elbow room in your lifestyle. Yeah, still, I get to work with DC without having to work in DC. It's kind of <laughs> nice. Yeah. Come and go as you please. Well, as you say, you've got lots of experience in working on farm bills, eight and a half years in Washington, D.C., and now we're getting ready and tackling the 2023 policy. Uh, Just here recently, you mentioned working with D.C., but uh, in Washington, talking with the four chief economists and specifically moving into this farm bill conversation here now. Sure. Yeah. So we just, I, I actually just got back from DC. We were having the American Ag Eton meetings out there and I, I host a panel every year of the, you know, the four chief economists from the, you know, both Republicans and Democrats from the House and Senate Ag Committees. And, and that was on this past Monday. And, you know, the conversation, I think m- most of the conversation about this farm bill, certainly at this point in time is all about the budget, right? Uh, it's driving all the conversation in part because uh, you know, particularly if you look to Title I of the Farm Bill, where we have the traditional kind of income support, most acknowledge that it's, you know, it's not up to par, right? That reference prices are far out of date, particularly in light of where cost of production has gone. And so raising those reference prices is going to cost money, um, but it's against this backdrop, you know, of, of, of a very tight you know, budget situation. And not, not to belabor it, but I think a couple of key considerations there. One 
is that you know we just finished the fiscal responsibility act right one of the first actions of republicans and the new majority in the house was having to confront the debt ceiling and you know they passed a bill that saved 1.5 uh, is projected to save 1.5 trillion dollars and they included things like you know work requirement and kind of ratcheting down the work requirements for snap and so i think there's a lot to point to you know to there but our country still owes you know almost 26 bill, 26 trillion dollars in debt held by the public right and so i i still think debt is going to be a significant uh, uh concern in this in this bill the other thing is that that fiscal responsibility act did not really provide a pathway for the farm bill right and so you've got a lot of folks saying hey we just passed this bill to you know to cut thing cut one and a half trillion and now we have this other bill saying we need to go you know raise spending you know you know how do we square those things and so i think it's a bit unfortunate that all you know that conversation didn't happen all together as part of that broader conversation on the debt ceiling but uh it is where where we are um, you know, with that said, too, the farm bill is also now slated to be about one and a half trillion dollars. You know, when I was working on the the 14 farm bill back in the day, you know, we were looking at 956 billion that had shrunk, you know, to the mid 800s by by 2018. And here it's just exploded since then. And most of that's owing to about an 85 percent increase in the SNAP baseline since 2018. And so you have all these dynamics at play, right, going on behind the scenes. And you have farmers sitting out here in the countryside saying, yeah, but I'm putting in one of the most expensive crops into the ground that I ever have with a safety net that hasn't been updated in 10 years, right, uh, with a couple of minor exceptions. And so that's a lot for the leaders to uh, in, in D.C. to to navigate the digest, right, and how do you square all of those competing concerns. And I think it's one reason why we still you know, we, we haven't uh, we haven't seen drafts of farm bills released yet. Right. But yet some of the comments we've gleaned is that even the leadership are on different pages right about where we're uh, where we're headed on uh, in terms of the funding that's going to be available to write this bill. I know that uh, some of the legislation or some of the, the the money that has been distributed out of Washington, D.C., a lot of folks thought that that would help take care of some of the arguments whenever it does come to some of the nutrition title expenses. Uh, do you agree with that or do you think that that just uh, was a drop in the bucket as to what we're going to have to debate? So there's a couple of ways to look at that. You know, one of the, in terms of funding that's gone out of Washington, D.C., right? I mean, we have relied heavily. Let's just focus on the ag side for a second, right? The, on the production ag side, we've relied heavily over the last five years uh, on, on ad hoc assistance, right? We had, you know, and largely starting and uh, with the trade wars with China, right? We had two rounds of the market facilitation payments under the Trump administration. Then we had the pandemic hit uh, and we had several rounds of, you know, CFAP and the successors to CFAP, whatever we're calling them these days. Plus then you had all the hurricanes, uh, wildfires, the natural disasters that led to things like WIP and ERP. And so, uh, you know, in, in some total over the last five years, we've talked, you know, we're talking about something in the neighborhood of $90 billion that's been infused into agriculture. The problem, and, and that's a lot. And quite frankly, for, you know, for our, our center, you know, most of the work we, you know, the way we do our work is we maintain what are called representative farms around the country. It's, it's, uh, you know, we've got 94 of them in 30 states and all of them are backed by a panel of real life producers. Well, one thing we can show is absent that ad hoc spending over the last five years, the financial outlook in agriculture would look a lot worse, right? And so you've got that in the back of folks' mind of like, well, we've already infused a lot of funding in, into agriculture. You know, why, why are we even needing to have this conversation? Because this conversation is all about moving forward, right? 
And the goal is to be able to get away from that. The ad hoc is all about what happened in the past and growers can't plan for that, right? You know, they, when they sit down with their banker to cash flow this next crop year, the only thing they can look to is what's currently in place. And we have crop insurance, which is vitally important, but they can't really bank on, well, if something bad happens, you know, maybe we'll get some ad hoc assistance. You know, it, it just doesn't work work that way. And so the goal uh, is to, okay, let's get the safety net back up to snuff so that we don't have to rely on all of that spending. Uh, and it's interesting to me, you know, I was in DC two weeks ago with, you know, doing a briefing for about 50 members of Congress. And this, that's the big conversation, you know, we had, everybody talks about all this money that, that went to agriculture. But if you look at this year, you know, the latest projections on net farm income in inflation adjusted terms is going to be the lowest it's been since the 19, early 1980s. And so, it was huge. Having the ad hoc assistance was huge, but growers can't rely on that going forward. And I would argue the flip side too is from a federal from a federal fiscal responsibility standpoint, it's also far better to have a meaningful safety net in place because I think you spend a lot more after the fact trying to fix the problem after the fact than you do by simply establishing sound farm policy up front. Having spent your time on the Hill, um... You know, we're talking about the the farm bill is getting ready to expire here in September. Uh, there's going to be a listening session that's going to take place at the Missouri State Fair during the month of August. And I know that there are others that are going to be scheduled in various places across the countryside. From your insider perspective, having been on the Hill and seeing the, the farm bill created from the Hill, how important are these listening sessions? Do they really play a role whenever we show up and we try and share with legislators uh, the problems we're seeing and what we want to see take place? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're important. You know, the ag, I mean, and I, I think it applies to both chambers, but certainly in the House, right? I mean, is very attuned to what's going on in the countryside. Everyone, every member of the House is up for re-election every two years, right? And so they keep their finger very closely on the pulse of what's going on in the countryside. And they, I mean, I can tell you from having sat at the negotiating table myself, you know, the, the members and staff, they want a farm bill that's responsive to the needs out in the countryside. Well, how do they learn about the needs in the countryside? You know, by listening to folks. And so those listening sessions uh, are incredibly important. I think it's also important during this process, uh, you know, that you engage. And so for, you know, for anyone listening to the, to the podcast, you know, I encourage you, you know, show up at town hall meetings with your member of Congress and, and don't take it for granted. I mean, yes, you've got great organizations representing you in Washington, but those organizations, Farm Bureau being at the top of the, you know, the heap relies on grassroots support. And so if you get an opera, I would, I mean, I've heard time and again, and and I mean, I, I heard it from everyone in my family I grew up with too. I don't, I don't want to spend any time in Washington. I got enough work to do out on the farm. And that's certainly true. But I think it's vitally important that you make time to engage, whether it's going to a listening session and making your voice heard or taking that trip to D.C. You know, join join in on one of the Farm Bureau trips to D.C. where you go meet with members of Congress, because one of the biggest challenges we have, it's I mean, say what you will about cable news and all of social media and all of the nonsense. I mean, particularly in the ag community in D.C., I mean, you got a lot of good folks working there who want to do the right thing, but it requires them, you know, hearing from folks that are directly impacted. So I would encourage you not to take it for granted. And I think it's particularly important now because you've got a bunch of members uh, in, in the House in particular who've never voted on a farm bill. 
And so it's important they hear from you about why it matters. And as we mentioned, the farm bill is set to expire in September. Well, it turns out that's not that far away. And as you mentioned, we haven't even seen an initial draft uh, release from the Hill as far as the farm bill is concerned. So what are the implications of them having to extend the farm bill yet once again? <laughs> you know, it, it's an interesting part of the game in D.C., right? You know, think, you know uh, talking through and thinking through uh, extension, it's certainly the farm bill uh, you know, the date, uh, the end date is, is September 30th. But if you just look at a couple examples, you know, take ARC and PLC and Title One of the Farm Bill, for example, they operate on a crop year basis. And so nothing magically, I, I get that question. The closer we get to September 30th, the more my phone is going to ring that am I going to get, you know, if, if an ARC and PLC payment is due, does that mean it's not going to happen? No, it's it's perfectly fine because it operates on the crop year, which takes us through the end of this calendar year. And so the from a farm policy standpoint, really the first thing that starts to happen, you know, is dairy after the first of the first of the year. And so you'll hear if we get to January without an extension, you'll hear about the dairy cliff and they'll probably be starting to talk about doing an extension. That's what happened, you know, with the four, when we were working on the 14 farm bill, we extended the 2008 farm bill. And I remember we wrote it out all the way to January 2nd of 2013 before we ended up extending it, in part because the leadership wants to keep pressure on for getting a farm bill done. So I wouldn't read, don't read too much in. If you if you get past September 30th and there's no extension, you know, uh, the sky is not falling. I will say for programs that don't have baseline, some of our trade promotion programs, it is a little more dire, right? Because their funding does start to run dry. And so I don't want to underplay the effect there, but certainly for big things like ARC and PLC, you know, the sky doesn't immediately start to fall. I mean, another corollary you can use then too is when we were doing the 2008 farm bill in the spring, that conversation drug into the spring, which you could arguably see it happening this time too, right? If they get it done in, in the respective chambers this fall, conference could stretch into the spring. Well, in 08, we did a series of I think at the time of, you know, five or six very short-term extensions until that bill was ultimately passed. Uh, in the early summer of 2008. And so, um, you know, even if there's no immediacy, you don't, you don't hear a lot of talk about, you know, farm bill extension out of the gate, not to worry, there's, there's time to, to deal with that. Now, of course, you mentioned crop insurance and crop insurance is one of those things that's always up for discussion. And a lot of folks, you know, don't mess with my crop insurance. Uh, where is there room for improvement? And do you think that that's actually something that might happen? Sure. No. And I mean, and I completely agree with that sentiment too, right? Of don't, you know, don't mess it up. Um, that's a, that's a starting point. You know, one thing I would, would observe though, is that if you look at the ad hoc spending we've had over the last five years, you know, mo particularly things like WIP and ERP, it's really taken the form of operating in the deductible portion of crop insurance. And, you know, for rank and file who don't, you know, really know agriculture, I, th I don't think most folks realize that for crop insurance, you know, you're only insuring on average across the country about 70% of your crop, right? You get a 30, you have to take a 30% loss before you get anything out of crop insurance. And so what's happened in these disasters is Congress has stepped in and said, you know, in that case, you know, a 30% loss, that's too much to shoulder, particularly when prices haven't, you know, haven't been great uh, anyway. And so we're going to step in and provide some aid. And so, you know, to me, that's what the ad hoc has done. It's been really free coverage in the deductible portion of crop insurance. I think a kind of a more sustainable long-term option would be, well, could we look at some improvements to crop insurance in that space instead? And we we do have, you know, products, we have area-wide products, you know, cotton has the stacks program, other crops have supplemental coverage option. And now, 
um, thanks to a private development, the enhanced coverage option, you know, stacks up on top of SCO. And so we have other coverages available in that space where you could actually buy crop insurance to cover, cover that risk. Certainly it's at an area-wide basis. I think part of the challenge is that coverage is really expensive. And so I, I do know that there's been some conversation about could we provide additional premium support, right? Rather than rather than giving away that coverage for free after the fact, how about the federal government share in the cost of it, increase the cost share to make it a little more palatable for growers where they can buy it up front rather than having to worry about it after the fact. And so yeah, that's just one example. I know you'd asked about you know improvements, but one other thing I'd highlight on insurance invariably, you get to a farm bill and we have amendments, you know, to do harmful things to crop insurance. And so, you know, that's the one I'm, so we're working on some of these improvements, but also watching closely some of the proposals uh, you know, on crop insurance. And one that perennially comes up is things like payment limiting crop insurance, which I think, you know, could be a potential disaster, you know, for insurance for a, for a variety of reasons. And another one that folks seem enamored with right now, too, just given all the conversation we're having on climate, you know, and changing climate is, you know, building some of that into crop insurance. And I would, you know, for me, you know, the hair stands up on the back of my neck and red flags start going up when I when I hear that because crop insurance has worked well primarily because it's based on insurance principles, right? And it's actually sound and it's based on losses. And so to the extent, whatever practice, whether you're no-tilling or cover cropping or conventional, to whatever it may be, the risk associated with those practices are already reflected in your loss history, right? And so when you start picking out individual practices that, well, we're going to give a differential impact on premium, to me, it's a, a little bit alarming. And and so I, th those are kind of two other fronts. Beyond making improvements to insurance, those are kind of the two other fronts I'm watching on on crop insurance right now. Now, it does seem in the, the the most recent farm bills, they have expanded some of the commodities that are eligible for various crop insurance uh, applications. Do you anticipate that that's going to be a trend that continues? Sure. No, I think all we're you know Congress is always looking to help close the gap, right, and to make crop insurance more equitable from you know both commodities and regions, right. And so that every single farm bill that is part of the discussion. Occasionally, it's even part of the appropriations process, right. I mean, one of the last appropriation cycles called on you know improvements you know for crop insurance for alfalfa growers as an example. And so there's a lot of of work underway right there, and certainly one area where we are still working to make improvements is on the specialty crop front, right? Their coverage, you know, is is just not uh, as robust as it is for other crops, but we're working to close the gap there. And so I think that will certainly, you know, be part of the conversation uh, as well. And, I, you know, there's also interest in, I mean, when you go back to you know, where we started the conversation, Janet, on, on coverage levels, that, you know, with an average buy-up level of 70%, there's also interest from members of Congress of, okay, well, yeah, I can fill it with an area-wide policy, but that still requires a county-wide loss. What can I do to act, get an, a grower's actual underlying coverage up higher? And so there's some proposals floating around out there, too, on, you know, could, could there be additional premium subsidy to try to bump that average coverage level up higher? That goes, though, to where we started, back to where we started the overall conversation of do we have the funding? You know, there, there's some inter, there's some really good stuff we could make happen. It's do we have the, and by we, I should be saying, do they, does Congress have the funding available at its disposal uh, to make that happen? Bart, one final question for you. Of course, uh, the, the hope, the dream is that the Farm Bill is done here, uh, preferably before the end of September. But likelihood, you know, who knows what's going to happen. However, um, 
what could be the implications of it extending into 2024 whenever we've got an election year and quite possibly another volatile election year on our hands? Sure. I think there's a couple of ways to take that. You know, one, the only real, I mean, other than those programs that don't have baseline, right, un, under an extension scenario or post-September 30th, I think the biggest concern is that, you know, the closer you get to, you know, the spring of 24, you're into planting season, right, for the 24 crop year, and the growers don't know at that point, you know, they, the 18 farm bill covered through the 23 crop year. Well, what's the safety net for 24, right? So the closer you get into 24, without some signal to growers of what, you know, protection they're going to have. I know that, you know, members of Congress don't like, you know, they don't like that scenario, right? They want growers to have certainty. That's the whole point of doing this. I think the challenge right now, though, is that if you did an extension of, of current law, they're not going to have much certainty either because the reference prices are so, you know, they're for a lot of crops haven't moved in 10 in 10 years, right? And so there is pressure. There's, there, there's certainly interest in getting it done for that dynamic. I think another, you know, factor is like you said, I mean, next year's an election year, you know, the closer this drags, you know, or the further this drags on into 2024, the closer you get to election season. Uh, and we don't like doing farm bills in the middle of election season. Um, and I say that, and literally we finished up the 18 farm bill after uh, the 2018 election, after, you know, with, with a, a flip in the house, right? So anything, I guess, is it's theoretically possible, but yeah, it's the goal would be you know to get it done long before then. Last point I'd make on that uh, that point though is that, and we've conveyed this to you know anyone largely who will listen, is that you have this weird dynamic right now where the Inflation Reduction Act last fall largely extended Title II of the Farm Bill already. So conservation is our conservation is one of the four big pots of mandatory money. It's already been extended. SNAP is the other another of the big four. It's largely, you know, permanent law. If you don't have another farm bill, the appropriators just keep SNAP going. Crop insurance is permanent law. It's permanently authorized in the Federal Crop Insurance Act. So the only major pot of mandatory money is Title I of the Farm Bill, things like ARC and PLC. And so our, you know, our point is that, you know, when you move a farm bill, main, I argue it's because it's one of the few pieces of mandatory legislation that ever moves. But when you move a farm bill, it attracts all sorts of, an, of amendments. Just look at what happened this week on ag appropriations, right, with hundreds of amendments filed. You know, members, you know, again, if you don't get a chance to, to vote on much mandatory legislation, because almost all of it's on autopilot, it's why it's how I explain why we end up with so many bizarre amendments in a farm bill. You think, why would anyone propose some of this? It's it's my only chance to you know offer up amendments on stuff. So it attracts all sorts uh, of amendments. And so our, our thought process is if you don't get meaningful improvements to Title I, what's the point of moving a farm bill and incurring all of those amendments to, you know, that potentially threaten crop insurance and checkoffs and this, that, and the other, you know, you name you, you know, it runs the gamut. And so uh, to me, if we don't see meaningful improvements, particularly in the reference prices, you know, there's not much, you know, there's not a whole lot of reason to move a farm bill other than to say we moved a farm bill. And again, I realize things like trade promotion, they go unfunded in an extension, a straight extension scenario. So it's not, it's not, it's not that simple. But when you look at the major pots of funding, it's really Title One is the only one uh, that's that's out there that needs to be reauthorized. All right. Well, Bart, anything else that you'd like to add for folks? 
I think uh, you covered the waterfront, Janet. So I'm glad to be with you today and appreciate the uh, the invite. I have to say you covered the waterfront. I'm just sitting here thinking, oh, my gosh, there's a whole lot of uh, this. Is, it's a deep water. It's a deep well. <laughs> I, may, I, I I would say, you know, it's so easy. And I, I teach a class, you know, I teach ag and food policy here at A&M every, every spring semester to about 190 gra- uh, undergraduate students. And and then, you know, also from having set in D.C., it's very easy to get jaded, um, you know, about what goes on in D.C. But I, I will reiterate, I mean, you've got you do have folks in D.C. The ag community there is pretty small and you have folks who I argue are there for the right reasons, who do you know come from backgrounds who understand this stuff. And so it's easy to get cynical right now, but I would encourage folks not to rather than getting cynical, I'd encourage you to get active and, and be involved. You know, be involved in Farm Bureau, take the trips to Washington and get to know those folks, because I can tell I have an it's not endless, but it's near endless array of examples where we were dealing with problems on the Hill or a member was thinking about offering some amendment and someone from home called their office and explained what would happen if that amendment or that change went into effect, what impact it would have on their farm. And the member went and dropped it or went and voted you know, voted the other way. And so I, don't get cynical. I know it's easy to get cynical, but don't. I, I'd highly encourage you to engage in the process. And uh, it, it's what makes, I still argue we've got the best country on the planet uh, and the best form of government as messy as it can be, but it only works if people engage in the process. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Dr. Bart Fitcher, he is a co-director of the Ag and Food Policy Center at Texas A&M University, joining us for this week's Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau.